Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 164 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Andy Bain, CEO of Element, a Silicon Valley company that enables industrial organizations to unite their operations data for analytical insights that drive cleaner, safer, healthier, more profitable operations. Previously, Andy served as EVP and Chief Strategy Officer for ABB Enterprise Software, EVP of Product Management and CMO at Ventix, and VP of Operations and Marketing at Global Energy Decisions. Andy has overseen dozens of new product launches spanning enterprise applications, automation and control systems, and analytical applications for asset-intensive industries. Andy earned his BA at University of Colorado Boulder. He and his wife, Lisa, a veterinarian, enjoy being outdoors, biking, skiing, hiking, and camping with their children. Andy, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thanks for having me, Ken. I've been much enjoyed it over the years and, and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, you know, we've done some work with you way back when, and it's high time that we finally get together. So I appreciate uh, Mike Dolbeck recommending to bring you in. And so looks like it'll be an exciting conversation today. So as you know, I always like to start off talking about one's digital thread. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread? Well, Ken, I'd have to probably start way back. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and was exposed to digital and computers and a lot of other tech from an early age. We had the University of Colorado. IBM had come to town in the 1960s. And for whatever reason, the U.S. federal government had decided to put a lot of the scientific agencies in in Boulder. So the National Center for Atmospheric Research was headquartered there. They had one of the first Cray supercomputers to do atmospheric climate modeling. There was NOAA and also, at the time, National Bureau of Standards, now NIST. And so we had a lot of parents who were very tuned into applying digital to scientific problems and put a lot of pressure on the school district, which ended up spending a massive amount on mainframe systems and other gear. And we were required as part of the math curriculum beginning in the seventh grade to learn how to program. And so this carried on through high school. And many of us also had PCs in our homes as soon as those were available. So Dungeons and Dragons wasn't so much a board game for us as it was a game on the the Apple PC. So I grew up in a middle-class family. I didn't realize until later in life how privileged we were to have access to that kind of technology and those resources. So for me, digital was always just there as the thread was woven into the patterns of life growing up and certainly nowhere near as dominant as it is today with my kids who can't seem to put down their smartphone. So anyway, fast forward to the industry thread. And after college, I'd been working in software and tech in the 90s. And one company in particular that was focused early on commercial applications of the internet, extending legacy systems of the internet and working in some fairly complex distributed systems around payments, order processing, and some in manufacturing, connecting suppliers with OEM shop floors, things like that. And so we were using some technologies that were probably ahead of their time, but we made it work and had a lot of fun. And at that time, I was exposed to some very deep thinkers who worked around descriptive psychology and artificial intelligence and classification systems. And 
I became fascinated by how you could ontologically and semantically represent the physical world digitally using data and software, the idea of digitizing the physical world. And so that ultimately led to the multi-decade journey I've been on working as a software provider to asset-intensive industrial companies, that, which brings you and I together today to have this discussion. What a great heritage uh, at the center of uh, OT and IT, it sounds like, and certainly the way you describe analytics. This should be a very interesting discussion. I see in your bio that your early leadership at Global Energy Decisions had already put you on to really a track record of success in industrial analytics. Maybe tell us a bit about what attracted you to that company, particularly in the space at that time. Sure. So the electric power space has just fascinating problems to solve using software and data because electricity is, you know, while essential for modern life, it's a commodity that once produced, it must be consumed, which gets, you know, ever more complex with the growth in nodes on the grid. And while storage is ramping today and it's important, it's still insignificant compared to load requirements. So, you know, our thesis at Global Energy was that deregulating markets would require better analytical software integrated to ever more comprehensive data to run these advanced workloads. And so use cases where everything from short-term decisions like load forecasting and generation portfolio planning and dispatch and trading and risk management, both physical and financial trading, to medium-term use cases like fuel budgeting and risk planning, to even long-term use cases like price forecasting, CapEx planning, things like that. But back in the day, we called the people using the software and data and doing the work, we called them quants. Uh, today, we call them data scientists. And, and this was very much a thread through the power industry, these quants, these data scientists. And they used at the time mostly traditional approaches to simulation and optimization, you know, linear programming, mixed integer linear programming and other methods. And at the time, really, the only AI was using neural nets to do load forecasting, which took a, a horrendously long time to run, but it worked. And so it was a lot of data, which I loved, and a lot of different techniques to analyze the data. We operate in Momenta really across four sectors, so energy, manufacturing, what we generally call smart spaces, I think, cities, buildings, farms, and then supply chain. And it's interesting because one of our early thesis was that the decentralization of energy caused really a digital transformation pattern that really, in some sense, was descriptive for yet those other three sectors. And so a lot of the deregulation you talked about, but also the technology changes in terms of decentralized generation and, of course, load distribution with electrification were, in some sense, the predecessors for some of the same patterns we're seeing in other industries. So I imagine this will be an interesting conversation as we step forward in that regard, because you were really at the front end of that. Now, you must have done well because Global Energy Decisions was acquired by Ventrex in 2007, which then subsequently was acquired by ABB in 2010 for about a billion, which seems like a bargain now looking at uh, 2021 pricing. But all in all, you invested over a decade into ABB across several executive leadership roles. If I can, what would you say were your top three insights relative to digital industry from this long investment of time that you put into ABB? Yeah, uh, three insights. You know, I'd say first, Ken, that this idea of ITOT convergence or what started as really ITOT integration is now more convergence uh, was going to grow in importance. That was a key insight. And, and it was going to grow in importance with more and better IT solutions that could be leveraged by OT. But also decades of automation control was reaching the point of diminishing returns for many owner operators and well beyond power. It was in you know, oil and gas, pulp and paper, 
manufacturing, it was regardless of sector. And industry wanted to find new ways to solve hard problems. So for example, we spent a lot of effort on ITOT integration at ABB when I was there in, in the enterprise software group. So we could do things like give the power distribution teams out in the field better information about the state of the grid from the real-time systems to keep them out of harm's way and, and get them information from the work and asset management system onto their mobile devices so they could be better prepared to do short and mid-cycle work or integrating things like load forecasting, Durham, SCADA, and other data sources, some of the things that you just mentioned, and apps for improved forecasting operations. So that integration of renewables into the grid was another one. So that ITOT convergence was certainly that it was going to be big was one insight. I'd say a second insight was the shift to cloud and connecting cloud and edge. And that cloud was going to be big, really big, and that industrials would eventually figure out how to leverage the cloud as they work through concerns about security latency, but that it was going to be a long journey, certainly. In fact, shortly after Joe Hogan left as CEO at ABB, I, I pitched the ABB executive committee on letting us build what we called the ABB industrial cloud. And I used a lot of cartoons and a high value transformer use case to try to make it super easy for them. But they couldn't wrap their heads around why anyone would want to use the cloud, let alone buy anything from ABB produced and made available on the cloud. And this was a decade ago. And this has certainly changed more recently, but the insight here is about how hard it is for big organizations to do first principles thinking that can result in innovation. So I was a software guy looking to leverage the cloud to make our customers' lives easier, but I was talking to a bunch of hardware guys. And then we think that the third insight and certainly the one that has played out for me in my life at Element is that data was increasingly central to everything. And if you could think about the data first and what it represented and how you could derive insights, that this could make a huge difference for our customers, but that the technologies just weren't there yet. And about 10 years ago, I had the ABB software product management leads for TND generation, mining oil and gas, put together plans for what I was calling at the time the physical graph. This was an industry view of equipment, key source systems, available data, and all the associated personas, what we sometimes today call the digital twin. And it's a really graphy problem, meaning that you needed a way to efficiently build relationships across a lot of nasty data layers from OT and IT to represent this non-hierarchical industrial world. And so we wanted to deliver at ABB Asset Health Solutions so you needed to know things like how the transformers, batteries, and breakers were related to one another in the substation, how the substation was related to the grid, all those things. So we tried using some of the new big data technologies like MapReduce, which you know powerful for certain types of unstructured data, but really couldn't get the job done. You needed higher level primitives above that. And so you can get that today from a graph model running on a graph database, which only really becomes possible to run at, at scale with elastic cloud compute. So that was the third insight, that, that data was going to come ever more to the fore. And I suspect that those three uh, great insights um, all have a nice direct vector bearing into you leading Element. So you joined Element as CEO in 2015. Maybe tell us a little bit about the origin story of the company. What problem did you set out to solve and for whom? Sure. Element's got an interesting genesis story. We were founded in 2015 out of Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm. Dave Mount, who's Element's uh, board chairman, was a partner on Kleiner's Green Growth Fund at the time, an investor in OSIsoft. And Dave founded uh, Element. He recruited Samir Kalwani, a data scientist, to run some experiments. And what they were trying to look at was how do you apply machine learning to industrial data? They recognized that OSIsoft was going to sort of stay in their lane and they want and they couldn't find an investment in this area. 
and those experiments fruitful enough to get a seed funding commitment from Kleiner. And then Dave recruited me in, as CEO and to launch the company. And so I joined in late 2015, and it was really just Samir and I and, and a data scientist. He and I set about to find the market and begin building the product. So we spent the first year going after analytical use cases like predicting the failure of critical equipment, you know, the typical things. We did eight POCs that were really data science projects with companies, you know, most of whom you'd recognize. And we were building data management software in the background. We recognized that really the biggest problem was the data and that the biggest value we were bringing to the equation was in data engineering, not in data science. And so that's the problem we focused on the last five years. And today we really support the needs of industrial companies who are transforming their operations through data-driven insights by building and deploying literally hundreds, if not thousands of analytics like predictive maintenance and others. And so today's manual approach mostly manual approach using Python code, using spreadsheets, you know, things like that to tap into source systems, it tends to result in hundreds of point-to-point integrations that can't scale or be governed, which makes it hard to achieve analytical insights. So that's the problem we're going after is that that disunited ITOT metadata and that ability to use a graph-based approach to represent the physical world through metadata and then to shed light on those relationships that are critical to analytical insights. So tell us about some of your key use cases and more importantly, wins. So we built our product element Unify as it's always been cloud native and focused, like I said, on uniting ITOT metadata. And it, what it really enables is industrials to get control of that metadata and give consumers easier access to context-rich data. And that really is the primary use case, you know, up-to-date views of operations and production and enabling them to really build fast using no-code pipelines, you know, this shift from deterministic to declarative programming and really taking advantage of more purpose-built data transformations that can address the OT problem. So you can think of Unify as the glue layer that stores and represents relationships across source systems in a knowledge graph to enable that idea that, you know, it's a shop-worn term, but that idea of a single source of truth, you can create that so that you can then take single slices of truth to deliver whatever use case that you need to deliver or to deliver data models to a data warehouse or, or a data lake, whatever it may be. So we're serving customers in multiple sectors, chemicals, power, paper packaging, food, ag, got motions in pharma and other sectors. But I would say that's just sort of generally the approach, specifically wins use cases. Let's talk about Avonic. They're a global specialties chemical company, and they certainly stand out for us. They're headquartered in Essen, Germany. They operate over 400 plants worldwide, and they have very strong digital aspirations. So Ivonic, like other customers, they want to use their ITOT data to go after multiple use cases. They want to do predictive maintenance on high-consequence equipment, you know, pumps, compressors, et cetera. They want to do root cause analysis, and where it's appropriate, they want to do OEE, and they want singular an approach as possible across their fleet of plants. And so they use Unify to contextualize their time series data, which is mostly IP21 from Aspen Tech with data from SAP, from engineering design systems and other data. And because we get them off of spreadsheets and out of writing Python code, they're able to speed time to analytics and at a greater scale of data to support all of these use cases and then some. So for them, this has resulted in, by their estimates, $110,000 per year in value per analytic deployed. And they're deploying thousands of analytics. So the value adds up fast. So I'd also say in addition that you asked about value, because they built data pipelines and are storing the data in a graph, 
uh, via Unify, the cost to then govern and maintain their data to keep up with changes happening in the underlying source systems is a fraction of what they'd have to otherwise spend. So it builds a lot more quality and a lot more trust in the data as well. Well, I certainly hope you contracted that with Avonic on a rev share basis or cost or cost savings basis. So <laughs> that that alone could fund the company pretty well. But congrats on already showing such value there. Let me ask, because you know, obviously there's a lot of companies that we've looked at and certainly a lot of peers that you have in the industry that claim similar analytics capabilities. How do you know when an organization is ready to adopt your solution and what best practices have you seen in realizing that potential value? Yeah, so I mean, we are very much a middleware company. We're not, we enable the analytics, we don't deliver them. We're more of a brave new world startup that is pre-category and I expect the category will be data mesh or data fabric. We're not a faster, better, cheaper category that customers already know how to budget for and how to buy, you know, like companies like Seek and Trendminer and others have done a great job, but they're more familiar from sort of a BI perspective than say what we're doing. And so for us, typically company has experienced some failure trying to scale up these analytical use cases, or they have an urgent pain associated with projects that are stuck because they can't manage their ITOT data. So you know, at companies who are further along in their transformation journey, their people do have some skills, some experience and freedom to try software on their own without a big procurement process and, and an enterprise sales motion. So as such, you know, during the past year, we put a lot of effort into product-led growth to make it easy for an individual developer to free trial the software and then evangelize the results within their company. And it's early days for us, but it's beginning to bear fruit. And IT is used to engaging this way. OT is coming up the learning curve on this approach. So that's some of the shift that's happening in the market for us. In terms of best practices, since we deal with a lot of OT data and and industrial subject matter experts, we'll work with them to scale up processes to contextualize and govern their data. It's a lot of data and it changes often. So to keep that digital view in sync with the physical world, while we automate much of that, it takes process and discipline because you're typically working across three environments for every plant, you know, development, staging, testing, and production, and you have to get everything right and keep it aligned. We've often heard IT analysts particularly bemoan the slow adoption times in the industrial IoT. Of course, there was a lot of hype at the very front end of this about how quickly OT would come up to speed as IT has done in the great virtualization we call the cloud. Where do you think we are relative in terms of industrial IoT adoption relative to what you expected in 2015 when you first joined Element? That's a big question. And I know our time is limited. We could spend hours on that, but let me me just try to (laughs) keep it short. I mean, look, the way I think about this is generally the rate of innovation sort of overall has been slower than expected or hoped for at a macro level. And innovations are fundamentally social processes first that then converge with technological processes. Unfortunately, I think the market has gotten this backwards by regarding IIoT as primarily a technical implementation challenge that can be overcome by a few specialists, only to wake up to it and realize that senior management really has to create the conditions for success across the business in order to get to some sort of sustainable value creation. So I think that, Ken, that's stretched out the flat part of the S-curve we're now in, but that the inflection point is in sight. You know, at the macro level, it's certainly easy to forecast the future diffusion of technology like IIoT, but at the micro level, it's very difficult to predict the exact moment when that, that shift will take place. And it very much comes down to those human factors. I think industrials are beginning to recognize this. We certainly see it within our customer base where individual customers are starting to approach that inflection point. 
or beginning to work through it and events are compressing for them and then the growth curve starts to unfold. I mean, we've got one customer who's building 70, what they call squads of between six to eight people on each squad or about 500 people who will be on these agile teams focused on data engineering and analytics development to build that foundation. And other customers of ours are doing that as well. And so you look at those inflection points at individual companies and that when combined with the cross impacts coming from, say, things like supply chain fragility and decarbonization and cybersecurity, those slow building driving forces come together and will really, I think, cause that sudden market change and that inflection point will happen. I think we're close. I think industrials don't like change, but they're beginning to embrace it. And COVID certainly spurred that on. Yeah, clearly it has created certainly a new normal. We uh, often joke that all of our portfolio companies did well during the COVID, if you will, downturn. And it's primarily because the common use case is remote asset management, right? You can't get people out to the equipment, then you somehow need to be able digitally to activate and monitor and maintain that equipment. And so anybody in this industrial IoT space probably did okay during that time. And certainly, you know, coming out of it where the budgets are really picking up, well, that and, and of course, all of the dry powder sitting in the market from an investment perspective is uh, creating some interesting valuation. So you mentioned inflection point several times, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't put you on the spot, maybe putting your prognosticator hat on for a moment. You know, what would you predict for the next five years relative to industrial IoT? And again, as you said, uh, knowing that we only have a few minutes left, so <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. That's a big question. So look, I like LNS's research industrial transformation chasm model, which builds off the classic crossing the chasm model. And we're really in this pre-chasm market that's momentum focused on incubating and kickstarting efforts at industrial orgs. But we're going to shift to this value driven side as companies move through the chasm. But what they've done in the early part of the market is going to have to fundamentally change. And I think that's where we are. And that with that as a frame, I think that over the next five years, those organizations that move into and through the chasm and make it to the other side are going to achieve real impact because they're the ones who recognize that the technology comes last and they see that people in process come first and you need to design this in. And so when you do go after the technology, the winners will have invested earlier in infrastructure like data management than do their industry peers and, and avoiding that trap of just going after the whiz-bang tools. And I think the winners will also be more adaptable when it comes to bringing IT and OT together and doing it where it makes sense. And, you know, an early example of that fusion is OT security. And you see a lot of the ICS security systems vendors who are in there and, and starting to make real progress. But what's happening is IT and OT cybersecurity is being fused together at many industrial companies in the SOC, in the Securities Operations Center. And there's a lot of lessons that are being learned around how you bring IT and OT together because the guys in the soccer sitting there getting a lot of false positives out of the OT cybersecurity systems, and they lack the context to understand that. And so when you have to solve those kind of problems together, you start to see organizations begin to work in a more singular fashion. That's an interesting one. We've invested in in Zage, a hive company that you probably know well in the Bay Area there. And they sit right at that intersection of ITOT on a cybersecurity perspective. And we've heard similar convergence stories as well around, as you say, the SOC and certainly a field activation of it. Yeah, I think the cyber-informed engineering is going to become big in the next five years. And we're certainly getting pulled into the Spire customers. There's going to be an expectation that it starts to come within the engineering designs, you know. So anyway. Hmm. So 
you know, speaking of new normal, you've proudly been a Silicon Valley company. I'm curious, how has the working and living patterns changed for Element and you since the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, look, I'd say, Ken, that Silicon Valley is really today more of a mindset, more of a concept. And I mean, we're headquartered in Silicon Valley, but we've always been a distributed workforce with, you know, a core team, mostly software engineering and DevOps in the Bay Area. But we've also got a team in Houston where most of our four deployed engineers are located. And they're, they're typically electrical, chemical, mechanical engineers, uh, often with a PhD in a similar discipline or control science. And they're really good hackers, too. And we also have a team of software engineers in Medellin, Colombia. And so we have folks you know scattered around and also you know in other parts of the US so we're really a mashup of IT and OT people but our pride really comes from the work we do helping people who work for industrial companies the ones who make things work in our world and make modern life possible and and we like to help them solve hard problems and and so regarding the pandemic and work for us you know covid didn't accelerate digital adoption like it did for our customers but it certainly had an impact on a lot of other things, both good and bad, I'd say. It drove our team to think more deeply about meaning in our work and meaning in our lives. And it surfaced a lot of conversations within Element about how to achieve better balance. You know, a lot of people have struggled to step away from their work with the line between work life and home life blurring. And so we've gone hard after that and look much more deeply at employee engagement and how to build trust across our team. And we talk more about the importance of mental health at our all hands meetings, and we make sure people know what resources resources are available to them. We've instituted a relief day the first Friday of every quarter, which is a mandatory day off because people just weren't taking vacations. And we've got this incredible team at Element and we consistently exceed our 95% quarterly employee retention goal because we've worked hard on building our culture and still do, but now building the culture remotely. So I'd say we're a work in progress and have a lot more listening and learning to do on this front. A work in progress, perhaps, but wow, you guys have really jumped quickly to reframe your culture and company. Again, as you mentioned, remote first, but I'm impressed and I really like the retention rate. So in closing, Andy, I'm curious, where do you find your personal inspiration? You know, Ken, I read a lot, history, biography, business technical, a lot of science fiction. I I like authors who stretch my thinking about the future, but who themselves are curious and humble. I've been reading a lot lately on economic history, AI and automation, thinking about where we are with technology and where we're going. And really the importance of delivering labor enabling technologies and not labor destroying technology. I think a really important book that will stand the test of time is Carl Fry's The Technology Trap. If you want to understand this moment in time, I also think Brian Cantwell Smith's book, The Promise of Artificial Intelligence, has really become one of my go-tos. I've read it three or four times, which is rare for me. Smith gets it right that we're far from incorporating human judgment into machine decision-making, and we really risk hosing up what progress we've made with AI for reckoning tasks if we don't factor in judgment, ethics, human consciousness, things like that. So we've got to make sure that these technologies address problems that help people you know, live safer and healthier lives. And so I've been reading a lot about that. With COVID, I've found myself revisiting books I haven't read for decades, books that form my early views on the human condition, like C.S. Lewis's books on theology, Viktor Frankl and Carl Jung on psychology, and many others that really are sort of timeless and provide anchors when things get turbulent. But mostly, though, I'd say I gain inspiration from people who make that hero's journey every day, who want to make things work. And mostly you don't hear about them because they don't have PR agents and they don't spend their free time on LinkedIn and YouTube. And, you know, these especially include Elements customers who are willing to take a risk to work with a startup like us to go after hard problems and do things they've never done before, where really there's no playbook. 
I'm also deeply inspired by our team at Element. I can't tell you how many flashes of inspiration I get every day working with our team. They're dedicated, brilliant, creative people. I'm lucky I get to work with them. And then last, I'm most inspired by my family, my four children, my wife, Lisa. <laughs> they challenge me to think different. They're people who actively seek justice for those in need. And, and they often whisper in my ear that all glory is fleeting. <laughs> well, you have many, many different reasons to be inspired and to be the inspiration that you are and clearly have been in this podcast. So, Andy, thank you for sharing this time and these inspirations with us today. It's been a pleasure, Ken. I truly appreciate the opportunity and the work that you and the team at Momenta are doing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So this has been Andy Bain, CEO of Element and a deep practitioner in industrial insights. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. 